Today, what I'm going to be doing is uh, just giving the second in a series that we've just started on John's Gospel. Uh, There's a brilliant introduction by uh, Dr. Elizabeth Shively last week, which I encourage you all, if you haven't heard it, or if you have heard it and want to hear it again, uh, to check it out on our podcast, which you can get from the website. And last week she told us uh, that what God does in Jesus at the beginning of uh, the Gospel of John is switches on a light and it illuminates who God is, who we are, and what the world really looks like uh, from God's perspective. And I think that she was absolutely right to say that, and I'm not just agreeing with her because she's my dissertation supervisor, but... uh, uh, but because I, I, I genuinely do agree that when God breaks into history to do something incredible and new, uh, what he's doing is, is it's a powerful reminder of what he says through the prophet Isaiah, if we can see the next slide. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we were just singing about that, about um, how God's uh, vision, seeing things with God's vision helps us to see uh, things aright. And we uh, were reminded when God sheds light on the world that the way we perceive uh, reality, the way uh, we experience the world, it's all bound up by time and space um, in, in a way that God isn't confined. Um, as well as that, we're distorted. Uh, our senses don't work the way they ought to uh, all of the time, just like our bodies don't work the way they ought to all of the time. But God sees things, everything, as they really are. And with Jesus, what he does, is he's, he's loving enough to show us that things are not quite what they seem. Uh, so I've got a couple of jobs to do today. One is to sketch a little picture of the world into which Jesus was ministering. That's uh, just to remind you of some of the expectations that people had. And that's not just to give you a history lesson, although I'm sure you'd love that as well. Um, It's because we're supposed to learn from the experiences of those people that we read about in the Bible. And if we know where they're coming from, we might be less inclined to judge them. We might even recognize ourselves in some of their responses and have some empathy with them. And the second job is uh, to have a look at John the Baptist and what he's all about. And just so we don't get confused by all the Johns, because we're looking at the Gospel of John and we're looking at John the Baptist, I'll call John, as in the author of the Gospel, I'll call him the Apostle, okay? And I'll call John, John. Is that okay? Good. Too many Johns. So the Apostle is at pains to describe John and make sure that we understand the difference between him and Jesus. It's possible that the apostle was writing for a community that had, uh, was a little bit confused about the distinction. Uh, but I don't want this to just be about people that lived a long time ago and what they were struggling with. I'm going to flip this around and ask what this all has to do with us. And I'm sure you're dying to know how I'm going to do that. And you'll be delighted to know that I'm going to do it by borrowing an idea I love from the uh, 19th century Danish philosopher Kierkegaard who I'm sure you've all read. Um, when he, but what he did, he looked at the church in Denmark and he was so frustrated because he saw a bunch of 
uh, clergy and ministers who were struggling with all their might to understand the Bible. Um, and a cynic, uh, cynical view would say they were doing that just to appear knowledgeable. Um, but what they forgot when they read the Bible was that it was supposed to be God's own life-giving words to them, that they were supposed to actually encounter God in the word, that they were supposed to be changed by encounter with him. And so Kierkegaard encouraged a view of the Bible in three different ways, which I've got up on the <clears throat> screen. First of all, it's a mirror in which we see ourselves as we truly are. And that's taken from the letter of James, that actually we see ourselves in the word. The second thing is a love letter. This is God telling us who he is and why he loves us and how he loves us. It's God's words of grace spoken to us. And the third sort of uh, means of communication is as a royal decree. We're supposed to do what God asks of us. So, uh, and James actually continues in the uh, idea of the mirror, that we're, uh, if we don't do what he says, if we don't do what the word says, we're like people who look at ourselves in a mirror and then when we go away, we forget what we look like. So that's what it's like if you don't do what God actually asks of us. So we're going to ask those three questions about this passage that we're going to look at today. What does it say about who we are? What does it say about God and his love for us? And what, what does it say about what he wants us to actually do? Good? Good. Uh, so let's read together from uh, John. We're in chapter 1 after the prologue, starting in verse 19. And reading up to verse 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? You have to give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him again. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one. You do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And a lot of uh, manuscripts also say this is the Son of God. 
So I said I wanted to paint a picture of the world into which Jesus was ministering, so I have to give you a history of Israel in five minutes. Uh, those of you who I've studied alongside are going to find this really boring or really interesting, depending on uh, uh, whether they enjoyed the course that uh, Dr. Shively taught us. So, um, so here we go. Right, God met a man called Abraham, and he promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great family, that that family would become a great nation. They would occupy a beautiful part of the world. But in a few generations after Abraham, it had all gone pear-shaped, and they were slaves in Egypt. See how I just did Genesis there? Right. <laughs> God sent Moses to lead them out of slavery with a miraculous rescue, which I'm sure you all know about the passing of the seas or the plagues and all that business. They came to a covenant or an agreement with God uh, in, which they, uh, in which God promised that he was going to establish them in the land that he promised to Abraham and that in return they would worship him and glorify him and they would, through worship and glorification, make him known to the rest of the world. And 40 years after the exodus, Joshua led them into that land. That's, I'm all the way through the Pentateuch now. I'm into Joshua. Uh, a bunch of really interesting stuff happened, which you can read about in Joshua and Judges, and then a monarchy was set up. So I've just done Joshua and Judges, and Ruth as well, I think. Yeah, sort of. Um, th- this is all in the Bible, by the way. If, if you are concerned about the accuracy of my uh, history here, you can read the Bible, um, which is a good thing to do. Anyway, the second king of Israel, David, had a great relationship with God, and God actually promised him that within Israel, uh, David would be the father of a special family that would actually be uh, unique within the special family of Israel. And David's reign was actually considered a, a, a golden age for the nation. But it didn't take long before uh, the country had a massive internal split. Because David's son Solomon, this really wealthy guy with tons of wives, and he presided over the division of Uh, God's people into two nations. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah, from which uh, we get the word Jew or Jewish, because they were Judeans. Of course, uh, people being people, uh, they repeatedly messed up the covenant with God, so God sent a bunch of foreign powers to come and deal with them. The Assyrians came, they smashed the northern kingdom of Israel and scattered all the people that were in it. And those people pretty much never returned. That was it. They were gone. So it was just Judah that was left. But then Babylon came along, smashed them, destroyed the temple, and took all the people out of the country into exile. But then Persia came along and smashed Babylon and said to the Israelites, or the Jews, says, you can go back home. We're sort of still in charge of you, but you can go back home. And they were happy to go home. Everything seemed to be going really well. They rebuilt the temple. Everything going kind of okay. But they didn't really have uh, anything like the glorious, holy nation uh, that they thought they ought to have. They were back in the land, but they weren't really in charge. And empires, they came and they went and... They kind of, they, every passing empire kind of chipped away at Israel's identity. And they were just a shadow of their former selves. And then in the New Testament, see I just did the whole Old Testament there. In the New Testament, they're under Roman rule. And I'm sure you all know a lot about the Romans. But there's a really important episode of history um, 
that occurred between the periods of the Old Testament and the New Testament that I think it's important to know about. Because if we don't know about it, we don't really know what the Pharisees are all about. So we're going to have a look at the Pharisees. Are are you still with me? Good. About 140 years before Jesus was born, there was this mad king called Antiochus. And he tried to eradicate Jewish religion. He did all sorts of really nasty things, including desecrating uh, the temple with a pig. Yeah, it was really horrible. But this sparked a Jewish revolution led by a guy called Judas Maccabeus. He was known more popularly as the Hammer. And, of course, he won. I wonder if you could uh, put the Hammer up on the screen. Um, Of course, the Hammer won. You couldn't not win with a nickname like the Hammer. (laughs) Could we actually, the next slide would be more appropriate. Yeah, there we go. So this is a... um, There's a movement in a piece that Handel wrote about Judas Maccabeus called With Pious Hearts. And that sort of uh, describes where the Pharisees came from. They come from a group called the Hasidim, which basically means pious ones. Those who saw it as their duty to protect the integrity of worship of God. They They would rather be tortured and killed than, for example, break Sabbath. So they were a big deal in Israel but from the time of Judas Maccabeus up to the time that we read about in the New Testament. There's not really anyone else who takes quite as seriously as they do the worship of God. So we need to cut them a break when we read the New Testament. We need to realize that actually, you know, even though they don't see who Jesus is, we need to recognize that their hearts are for God. They just haven't figured out that God is doing a new thing. Under the Roman Empire, they're deeply afraid of what it's going to mean if uh, the Romans just chip away more and more and more at their identity, and they're desperate for a new move of God. So they come along and they question John the Baptist because they've read the scriptures and they've got this kind of idea of what God is going to do. So, what are they expecting? Can we have a look at the next slide? They're expecting John to be either the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet. So who are these three that the Pharisees might expect? The Messiah is a word that kind of wraps up a bunch of prophecies about an anointed person, somebody who's going to be in the line of uh, the family of David, who one day is going to restore Israel to that golden age to uh, adapt the slogan of a a current American presidential candidate. They're looking for somebody who will make Israel great again. The actual Messiah, by the way, and this is a spoiler alert, is Jesus. Um, the, the Hebrew word for Messiah is the same as uh, where, we get the Greek, uh, where we get Christ. Christ is the sort of Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. It's not a surname as though if you were writing to Jesus, you'd address it to Mr. Christ. It's a title. It's a confession that Jesus is the one that God has sent 
from the family line of David, and he's going to make Israel great again. It's just that he's got a very unexpected way of doing it, as we'll see in future weeks. So John is not the Messiah. Is he Elijah? Well, he looks like Elijah because he's wearing these clothes made out of camel hair and he's got this leather belt wrapped around him. And Elijah looked a lot like that. So it's kind of a natural thing to assume. Elijah was like a superhero among Jewish prophets because he didn't even die. He got wrapped up in a whirlwind, taken up to heaven, and there were chariots of fire and you know, um, people running down West Sands and everything. But... Uh, but there was an expectation uh, in prophecy that Elijah was actually going to come back. Uh, in fact, um, the uh, last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, one of the last sentences in it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So it's almost like, let's just finish the Old Testament with an expectation of Elijah coming back. Chariots of fire. So, uh, so anyway, is he Elijah? Well, John says no. If we actually dip into the other Gospels, Jesus actually sort of suggests he is. So in some ways, he does actually fulfill these prophecies of Elijah. But in any case, what we know is John thinks he isn't in the Gospel of John. What about the prophet? Well, this is a reference to Deuteronomy and God promising that there's going to be a future prophet just like Moses. So the Pharisees think, hang on a minute, the situation we're in right now is not so different from when they were slaves in Egypt. We're in our own land, but we're, we're under Roman rule. So what we need is a Moses to come and get us out of here. And actually, N.T. Wright and others uh, argue that the exile never really came to an end. They were expecting this Moses-like prophet to come and rescue them. Make Israel great again. So John says, no. No, no, no. And uh, just as an aside, in, again in the, other, in the other Gospels, they kind of they deal with this question, but in a very different way. There's an event called the Transfiguration, um, which isn't in the Gospel of John. But, but in the Transfiguration, Jesus is seen speaking with, on one side, Moses, and on the other side, Elijah. So who is it? It's the Messiah in the middle, Elijah, and the prophet. So they sort of, uh, in their own way, are keen to make sure you understand the differences between these expectations. Are we doing okay? Good. We all have a general idea of the, the tumultuous history of Israel from Abraham to John the Baptist. Brilliant. You just did uh, Jesus and the Gospels, which took us a whole semester. Brilliant. Uh, so, John. This is where we pick up the story in the Gospel. When John finally gives a reply to who he is, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, indicating that he's the one calling out to Israel to make a straight path. For who? Or whom? I don't know the difference if you know. You're a pedant. Anyway, um, Anyway, let's take a look at Isaiah. It says, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That is the Lord Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's so easy to sometimes read, uh, read the scripture and kind of skip over 
the words or not quite grasp the importance of them. But if we just stop and think about this for a minute, John is announcing the arrival of God. They're expecting the Messiah or Elijah or some Moses-like prophet. But John's saying, forget them. (laughs) Guys, the boss is coming. Yahweh himself is coming. You want to get in the water. You want to get yourself cleaned up. You want to be ready, as ready as you can make yourself, for when he gets here. I'm nothing. I'm just a voice, he says. I'm just, I'm just like the warm-up act. You know, I'm just the guy God sent to tell you that he's coming. And this should have really freaked the Pharisees out. They should have known the scriptures as they did. They should have known that this was serious. But instead of humbling themselves and getting in the water like John suggests, their response is, well, if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, then what are you doing? We don't actually know what he was doing. Actually, if we're honest about it, nobody really knows what he or others thought they were doing by baptism. We know it was probably some kind of ritual of purification. He, te- he preached a baptism of repentance, so he was, uh, he, he was keen that people understood that the way they were living was not right with God, and they needed to somehow recognize that and turn from that, humble themselves, purify themselves. And John has given them an answer. He's said, I'm the one, I'm the voice calling. Make straight the way of the Lord. But they're so stuck on their interpretation of Scripture, they're not ready for this new move of God. Jesus isn't like anything they were expecting. He's not a new figure in the line of Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and Judas, Maccabeus. Uh, He was God himself, made flesh, the creative word, present in his own creation, real flesh and blood, walking around with them. And when the gospel says that uh, John gave his testimony, what's interesting, I find, is that he stops quoting scripture. He doesn't preach some beautiful, abstract theology that he's worked out by poring over the scrolls in a library like the Pharisees. He could do. He certainly knows his Bible. But instead, when he gives his testimony, he just tells people what he's seen and what he's heard. He says, just like you guys, I didn't know who Jesus was. But then I heard this, and I saw that, and I figured it out. It made sense. When he gives his testimony, he stops theologizing. And he does what would be asked of him if he were, for example, a witness on a stand in court. Now imagine what a judge and jury would think if he was standing in court and the barrister asked him, so could you tell us, Mr. Baptist, um, why it is that you are a Christian? 
And John would say something like, well, you see, God created the world, and he saw that it was good, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God demonstrates his love through Jesus dying for us while we were still sinners, so that by believing in him, we may not perish, but have eternal life. Now, those would all be brilliant, profound, biblical truths, but it wouldn't be acceptable as John's testimony, because they want to know what he has personally seen, what he has personally experienced. So he says, this is what I heard, this is what I saw, and this naturally led led me to believe X, Y, and Z. And the amazing thing about his testimony is that it matches up with the testimony of others who wrote the scriptures. So multitude of, uh, a, a, a multiplicity, or what shall I say, many centuries of people writing down what God was doing. And here's John in the wilderness, and he sees the Spirit of God descend on Jesus, rest on him, and he thinks, ah, that reminds me of when Isaiah said, and this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, there shall come forth a shoot from the branch of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, so that he's talking about David's family, but Jesse is mentioned, so I'll just mention him again. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So his testimony matches the testimony of others who hundreds of years before had said, this is what I heard God say. But the the thing I really want to kind of press home today is that no one, however brilliant their intellect, can deny what he himself says he saw and what he heard. The same is true of you. No one can deny your experience. They can argue that what you experienced means something differently to the way you think it means. You have no control over that part of it, though. Your job as a witness is to just merely say what you saw and what you heard. So whatever your experience of Jesus, and I'm asking you now, whatever your experience of Jesus is, that is your testimony. If you have no experience of Jesus, that's your testimony. If you trust, however, the testimony of others that you know that do confess Jesus as Lord, then you're actually invited to make that testimony your own. You're invited to come and see, to come and test to see if it's actually true. It's not enough uh, for Christians just to quote the Bible at people. The exciting thing about John's testimony is that it agrees with the Bible. My testimony, by the way, is of um, growing up uh, with all sorts of impressions of who Jesus was based on other people's uh, misguided impressions of what Christians believed. It's so easy to come to a uh, prejudiced point of view based on other people's experiences of what they don't know. And actually, when I uh, had the opportunity and I was given the opportunity to find out for myself who Jesus was, and actually it was in the Gospel of John that I first... uh, went, I encountered a Jesus that was not the person I expected. 
I encountered a Jesus who, uh, instead of some manipulative religious teacher, was a man who got down on his hands and knees and, and washed his disciples' feet because they were dirty. And he came to serve, not to be served. And so in the end, I asked God if he would give me the rebirth that he promised. And we're going to be talking about rebirth in a couple of weeks when we look at Nicodemus. And my testimony is that he did. He did give me the rebirth that he promised. So I'm going to start talking now uh, about uh, what happened then. I'm going to ask about what we do now and go back to Kierkegaard's three ideas of how we look at the Bible. Uh, Let's have those three notions back up on the screen. The Bible is a mirror. What does this passage say about who we are? Well, I think it tells us that we're not who we're supposed to be. I think it reveals that uh, the world is not the place it's supposed to be. And somewhere in all of us, we know this, we feel this to be true. We feel that there must be more. We feel that something within us and something without us needs to change fundamentally. And we actually share this feeling with the Pharisees. But perhaps where we differ from them in these days is that they had hope and an expectation that God was going to do something about it. Our response uh, tends to remove God from the equation completely. We might be pessimistic or fatalistic and decide that you know, things are the way that they are and they'll probably get worse. Or we could be optimistic and pragmatic and say we can do better and we will do better. Those are all uh, you know, true worldviews as far as they go. But when God switches on the light in our lives, we realize that our designs of change only get us so far and no further. And it actually requires a move of the God who created everything to come and recreate everything. And that way, change is real and effective. And that move of God has happened in the event of Jesus' life and ministry. But we can't actually benefit from it unless we actively trust the testimony of those who bear witness to him. And the witness that we bear as Christians today is not just that God changed the world when he sent Jesus, but that Jesus conquered the powers that we're so afraid of, the power of death, by rising from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that he ministers for us in the heavenly tabernacle, that he sent the Holy Spirit, who again is God himself, present with us right now, to heal, to minister, to counsel, to comfort, to guide, to sanctify, to purify, to, all, to do all of those things. God is present right here, right now. But what about a uh, love letter? Well, despite the fact that we're completely unworthy of God's love, God still comes and makes possible what is impossible for us. Um, 
you know, the Christian life is less about our pursuit of God and much more about his relentless pursuit of our hearts to win back what rightly belongs to him and what will never have rest until we find it in him. And as we re- we'll, we'll read later in the gospel, God loved us so much that he came himself to suffer, to bear the consequences of everything that we have done wrong to ourselves, to others, to the world, so that we need not be estranged from him any longer. He didn't condemn as was his right and as would actually be just, but we actually already stand condemned because we stand in rebellion to him until we accept his forgiveness and are reconciled to him. So, last one, royal decree. What does this passage say we're supposed to do? Well, it depends who you are. If, it, if, if you are a Christian, it's, uh, the, the thing this passage says to do is to bear witness. Bear witness to what Jesus has done. That means you have to ask yourself, what is my experience of Jesus? How would I answer that question if somebody asked me? Would I answer with, um, with scripture? Would I answer with sort of uh, an idea of what I think God says he's going to do in my life? No. Let's answer what God has done in our lives. Let's be true to our own experiences because nobody can take, us, take that away from us. But if you don't know Jesus and you're not a Christian, the invitation here is to trust and believe the testimony of Jesus' witnesses. Now, not everything you hear a person say should be believed. It's not the case that you ought to accept the testimony of anybody who has a testimony. What I would suggest, though, is that the testimony of those who have called themselves Christians over the last 2,000 years and those of the Israelites uh, for thousands of years before that, when they agree, there's got to be something in it, right? And so I invite you in the presence of God and in the presence of these witnesses to ask God to be real to you, to invite Jesus into your lives. And I'm going to end there. Why don't we stand and pray? God, I want to thank you that you uh, you don't leave us uh, just to our own devices, which get us only so far and no further. But Lord, you come and you change everything. Lord, you come and show us who we really are, who you really are, and what the world around us really looks like.
I just want to ask, Lord, that you would uh, switch on a light for all of us now, that we would see uh, we would just see our lives as you see them, ones who are deeply loved, but also deeply in need of your transforming spirit.